you know, have a ton of respect for the way he approaches the game. He's a football guy, and um, so we have a lot in common there. I really enjoy football. Bill Belichick on, of all coaches, Matt Rule. He's a football guy. We have a lot in common. We really enjoy football. That may be the only thing they have in common is coaches well, go, look, hey, Matt Rule, this is year three. This is it, baby. This is it. Time to prove that you belong. No the doubt. The contract implied that he belonged. Remember right. a couple of years ago, David Tepper, owner of the team, had to get him, had to have him, made him an offer that – he couldn't refuse an offer that the Giants wouldn't even come close to matching. That's how he got him. Right. And another college coach that has yet to really get the traction he needs in the NFL. So joint practices this week between the Patriots and the Panthers as they prepare to play a preseason game. And we'll see if Matt Rule can hold his own this year. Yeah, no doubt. You're, I mean, you're right. It's a huge year for them. And we got questions. But I think, you know, what Bill Belichick is saying is what led to Matt Rule getting that big contract, and he he was very respected in the football world, uh, I think, by a lot of people in the NFL. I think a lot of people viewed him as an NFL guy who had gone to college and had success, and even though there he was in college, I know for a fact he was always trying to you know, work his way back into the NFL and hopefully be an NFL head coach at some point. So he is respected that way. And I don't know how quite he made his name for himself. I mean, I know he coached for the Giants for a little bit, but obviously made the name for himself in college football. But, uh, man, you, you talk to people who know him, Mike, it, it's one of those things where that's it's what a lot of people say. Oh, man, he, he's got it. He understands it. He knows how to build a team. He knows how to coach the team. We'll see. There was improvements yesterday and last year. We know that the team itself looked good. They just got one issue, and it's a big issue. And it ties together with what you always talk about with David Tepper, the damn quarterback. And they haven't been able to find the damn quarterback yet, and maybe they can find that in Baker Mayfield and he can help them out. Do you believe yeah. that when Matt Rule got the head coaching job in Carolina a couple of years ago, Belichick accidentally texted congratulations to Matt Patricia? That's what I want to know. <laughs> uh, I, uh, no, I don't believe that. I don't. I do believe that Bill Belichick was maybe playing with some of the pieces in those coaching hirings between the Giants oh, yes. and the Carolina Panthers and some of that. I mean, if you listen to anybody in football, they'll, pre they'll, they'll pretty much tell you that. But uh, either way, there's a relationship and a respect. And I do like the roster of the Carolina Panthers. We do like that. I mean, they got one of the best defenses in football. They transformed that in a hurry. They got some weapons, O-line and quarterback. Can they improve those two things in the NFC South where we know there's two really good teams there that are well-built? We'll see if they can do it this year. A lot of opportunity in the NFC this year to try to get to the postseason, unlike in the AFC where it is going to be a battle, and we're going to focus at least for the initial portion of today's program on the AFC and the challenges that the Patriots will be facing. Before that, though, let me say good morning to everyone out there. Pro Football Talk Live on Peacock, on Sirius XM Channel 85. We used to be up over 200. We've been in the 85 we're in the 85 range now. now. Okay. 85. Ocho Cinco, 85, baby. baby. We are the Ocho Cinco. Sirius XM Ocho Cinco. That is where we are, along with the rest of the NBC Sports Audio family. Podcast, wherever you can get your podcast. And the podcast audience, very sensitive about not being mentioned. I'm even mentioning them today before I say hello 
to the folks in the UK and in Ireland watching the program on Sky Sports. No complaints from them recently other than last week's rugby game that preempted us. And I forgot to mention the rest of the story on the rugby game because we started down the whole Heidi rabbit hole and we didn't want to be responsible for someone missing a thrilling conclusion (laughs) to a rugby match like the Heidi movie from the late 60s. As it turns out, Chris... The rugby game that preempted us last week. They hided us? No. It oh. was a re-air. Oh. It was a re-air. Oh. It was a re-air. It wasn't live. Oh, wow. That, yeah. We'll do it live. Damn. Nope. We'll do it re-air. <laughs> Damn. We'll do it re-air. Damn. That I hope they did cut that the end of that game off for us, for sure. I mean, please. Definitely they had yeah. Sting to play us out. All right. Let's All get right. to it. Uh, Patriots. Let's yeah. focus on what they're doing offensively. Mike Reese of ESPN.com, who does a great job covering that team. He, do, he, he does really it does. as well as anyone. He's got a Sunday notes column that that is is exhaustive and comprehensive. And then from time to time, you'll see on his Twitter feed, he'll just kind of empty the notebook from anything that he's been tracking at practice. A, a really good insight into what's happening with the Patriots. And one thing that's happening there, Josh McDaniels, obviously he's gone. He's now the head coach of the Raiders. They're changing the offense post-McDaniels. And I get the impression, Chris, that they've just had this bloated. It's like George Costanza's wallet. It's this big bloated thing that they keep cramming stuff into, and they've decided to thin out the wallet this year and simplify things because it had become this behemoth that no one could learn. Well, I I, I don't doubt that. I don't. I don't know. There's a, there's a part of me, too, that – you know, maybe the offense isn't going to be quite as thick or intricate or have many as details because you're losing the the brain that teaches it all too. You know, the, I, to me, this is one of the the biggest stories in football, and you know, th- and and really, we we could talk about the Bills a little bit later on too. But yeah, I mean, it makes me wonder what to think about the New England Patriots. Listen, I understand they're going to be good, but how good can they get back to the playoffs? I, I like I'm I'm on the fence with that a little bit just because of that situation, and not that I don't have great respect for Joe Judge and Matt Patricia. I think they're really good coaches. You know that, Mike. You know I respect them, but I'm not sure they're ready to call and do offensive game plans right away here in year one and lead Mac Jones and company, you know, through the AFC, which we know is stacked, and go to the playoffs. So, to me, this is the one of the biggest questions in the game this year. There's no question. I mean, you and I both agree, whatever, whatever we want to think about Josh McDaniels, the head coach, okay, I know that was a failed experiment the first time around. I don't think it will be this time around. He is, as an offensive mind, in the class of the best in the game over the last 16, 17 years. In my opinion, he's up there with the Sean Paytons and the Andy Reeds and the McVeighs and the Shanahans. Uh, to me, he's in that class. So I don't care who you are, what team you are. You got Bill Belichick coaching you or Vince Lombardi coaching you. When you lose that type of guy on your staff, I, I got, got to think there's going to be a little bit of a drop-off on that side of the ball. Here's the key quote from Mike Reese's report from Sunday. The primary motivation for the change to the offense, yeah. according to those familiar with Belichick's thinking, was to make it easier on players the volume of the old system had grown so much over 20 plus years with tom brady a huge part of it and then specific cam newton based wrinkles in 2020 adding another layer to navigate 
so the time seemed right to streamline. Altering verbiage is arguably the most significant part of the change. Yeah. Many things no longer carry the same meaning. How hard is it, Chris, Yes. to learn that new language? It's still English, right. obviously, but it's a significant alteration. If they have indeed made this change to verbiage, it's a lot of stuff you got to learn. The words and the numbers and the letters that you used to use don't mean the same thing or aren't even part of the words, the numbers, and letters that you're using now yeah. to call your most basic place. Yeah, no, uh, you know, Mike, we, we've discussed this before, right? I mean, I, I, I've told you that it's one of those offenses. It's one of the hardest to learn in the game. And the language, you know, even before this change here was it, it's, it's different than most of the NFL. I mean, I had a little laugh with Derek Carr in the pregame of the Hall of Fame just because he was in the Gruden offense like I was, and now – you're using plays where, hey, in Gruden's offense, the West Coast offense, the one play, if there was a tight end to the right and the receiver to the right and two receivers to the left, we called it double wing right. And the in the New England system, it's zero out slot, okay, and it's it's number it's numbered system. You know, three you know three a tight end and two receivers is zero hole, and it's it's so quarterbacks and people get there and they're like, whoa, I've never had plays called this way, and then they combine words to explain you know the passing concept. So it is a little different, and I think that's probably why Belichick streamlining this. He's got some younger players on the football team, and I think they've probably realized over the few years here that free agents who come in there have a hard time picking up that offense real quick because it is so different. And I think there's a lot of teams that are trying to do this type of stuff and streamline for the players because of, because of the current state of the game and guys changing teams so much. So I, I, I can understand that. I really can. Tom Brady's as smart as they come. You and I both know that. And even he had to wear that damn wristband and read the play at times because it was, the plays could be so long. And then if it was a double play called or something of that nature, I mean, you, you could be sitting there forever spitting this out or trying to remember exactly how it goes. So um, it's probably a good thing New England streamlining the language. That, that's one thing I, I would say for sure. I'm curious as to how a normal quarterback would go about learning the new language. I'll have to settle for you. How would you go about <laughs> – seriously, I yeah. mean, what, what does it look like? What do you do? How right. do you learn this? Sure. It, it really – like there's not a Rosetta Stone out there no, no, I that know. you can get to learn a new offense. What do you do? You, you go back to the basics, Mike. Like you, you, first off, you learn through the meetings and you're talking it and, and hearing it all the time that way. But the other thing you got to do – and this is what I did when I got into that offense in Denver and Denver with, with McDaniels and Kyle Orton, the quarterback, you got to start writing the plays out. You literally got to be almost like a little kid and go, oh, wait, here's the game plan this week. Okay, let me write the, write the play in words. And now let me draw the play like a little kid and X's and X's and zeros and O's and O's and do that and draw the patterns that way. And you try to learn that way. That's what I did. Let alone, Hey, you're going to be sitting in some free time, just looking at the book and studying and try to remember it that way. But I'm a guy that, you know, talking and when I write it down, I can really absorb it that way. And I think that's, you know, uh, one way I saw a lot of quarterbacks through my times kind of take that approach. I, I stole that from guys I was around in my younger years. So it does take some time. But, yeah, you almost got to be that kid that's like, you know, in seventh grade geometry 
where, okay, I got to sit down and write the work out and, and really try to, you know, put my head around that. And that's kind of how you do it. And then you go from there and you try to talk the language all the time and slowly, but surely through osmosis, it kind of starts to bake into your brain. Beyond what's happening with the verbiage change and the streamlining of George Costanza's wallet. You've got the question of who's actually going to be calling the plays offensively this year in New England. We've said this before. Was any other coach doing this? We would be saying this is insane. (laughs) A longtime defensive coach who's a failed head coach, not necessarily entirely his fault, hard to put the Patriot way on top of the Lions franchise, just doesn't quite fit. But Matt Patricia back after being the jack-of-all-trades last year. He's now the offensive line coach. Joe Judge, special teams coordinator, dabbled a little bit in offense, but he was a special teams guy, failed former head coach of the Giants. He's now the quarterback's coach. So in week one of the preseason, both were calling the plays. It was Patricia with Brian Hoyer. It was Judge with the rookie quarterback, Bailey Zappa. Now, going forward, we don't know who's going to call the plays. Here's Bill Belichick. Matt Patricia and Joe Judge from yesterday talking about the current play calling situation offensively in New England. Play call, you're going through a process just like everything else on the team. What's the nature of that process? Is it competitive, you know, like it is for the players where you're competing for opportunity and being evaluated? No, that doesn't have anything to do with it. Then how would you characterize the process? That's, we don't have time for that. I appreciate the question. I really do. I, I know. I know how interested you are in that subject, and I'd love to be able to shed a little more light on it. But it's honestly, it's a much longer conversation. The assistant coach's job is real simple: make the head coach happy. That's your job. He has a vision for his team. He knows what he wants his team to look like. It's our job to listen and to go out and execute the way he sees it. And that's the important thing as assistant coach. You know, you can't have, you know, twenty head coaches. There's one head coach. All right, it's our job to make sure that when he speaks in a meeting, we understand what he's saying and to make sure that our players can go out there and execute within that vision. That's our job. That's my job. So as far as defined roles, whatever it may be, I come to work every day with one simple policy. Whatever he says goes, okay? I'm not the head coach here. That's one certain thing. And my job is to do whatever he says to the best of my ability and get the players playing better. I mean, honestly, it's it's just collaborative from that standpoint. You know, I mean, um, we, we follow Coach Belichick's lead. You know, I mean, it's obviously we're just – I'm just trying to do my job to the best ability, whatever he asks me to do uh, on any given day. And that's the beauty of it. That's what I love. You know, it's always kind of uh, new and exciting and challenging from that standpoint. But really just, you know, we're all just working together right now, which is the great part about it. You know, you can tell that both Judge and Patricia have been head coaches because they know how to communicate effectively with right. the media. Right. And you didn't get – I know this is kind of playing the hits around here, but it really does kind of bug me that there's this undercurrent of derision from Belichick from time to time when people are just trying to do their damn jobs. It's an obvious – question well we don't have time for that well we got time (laughs) bill we got we got nowhere to be we'd love to know what the hell's going on here i mean the idea that you've got two different guys calling the offensive plays in a preseason game of course that's going to create natural curiosity and maybe confusion as to what the hell's going to happen week one and it does invite speculation of course that he is letting the two candidates compete to see which one does a better job of calling the plays because neither guy's done it. Who's going to call the offensive plays? Well, I got two former head coaches that 
really aren't experts in the offensive side of the ball. Let's see how Patricia handles it, and let's see how Judge handles it. That's the obvious explanation. If yeah. it's anything but that, then take the time and explain it to us. I mean, we've seen Belichick go down a 10-minute rabbit hole on how they used the up back in the single wing back in 1942. He can take some time and tell us about what his plan is at the play caller position. I, I, I hear you there, Mike. <clears throat> I mean, I love Coach Bill Belichick, and he's the greatest coach in the history of sports, in, in my opinion. But uh, I, I do wish he was a little, you know, easier on the media that way. Maybe just a little bit more. Hey, you know, it, it, it's not that hard to answer that question. I, we don't need all the details, but just give us a little inkling. I hear you. I don't understand that either sometimes about him. But I'm sure he has his tactical reasons as well. He is one of those guys, and he's extremely tactical. Uh, everything's pretty thought out, and I don't think he wants to shed light on anything in case he might say something and somebody, you know, misconstrues it some way and takes it some other direction. So I guess he just is tight-lipped when it comes to that stuff. Or maybe the truth happens to come out. Well, and he doesn't want the exactly. truth to come out. I think so. You're right. Maybe that's that is maybe that is. But th there's one thing, and y you heard it there. I, I mean, not that I've been in every building in football, and the head coach is always the man in every building. But you know, it, it said you know Mass General Brigham there behind them. I mean, there's there's only one general in that building. Okay, I can just tell you that. And as soon as you walk in, you know who the freaking general is. You can't walk in without going by his office and Bears Nigerian, his assistant. And, you know, they're, you feel like when you're walking by, you might be going through like a metal scanner and they're x-raying you and you're like, oh, man, are they, is there some secret machine they got to tell my mood today and if I'm, what I'm bringing in the building? I mean, they're just all over every detail. And then, you know, Belichick, to, to, the, to what they're saying, it, Belichick is one of the few coaches that could coach both sides of the football. He could do it. So he's going to be, and he's already made comments, he spent more time on that side of the ball than ever before in his life. And he's going to give them the path and the vision in which he wants to see the offense go. And that's where they're, they're different too. You know, They have long coaching meetings where he coaches the coaches and they you know, understand his vision like they were talking about through that. So I think they're just finding their way. And who calls the plays? I think it's probably the thing that Belichick's probably least concerned about because like we talked about last week or maybe it was two weeks ago, I think Belichick's going to narrow it down for these guys to a degree where it's not going to be that hard. He's going to go, hey, on third and seven to ten, I like these ten plays. So you guys, okay, you can have the freedom of which ones you like the best and when you talk to Mac Jones or whatever, but these are the ten plays I like. Here's third and two to four. Here's the 10 plays that make sense to me. And, you know, they'll build off of that. And at some point, yes, he'll try to find the guy who has the best rhythm within calling those plays and, and having a feel for the defense. But it'll still be collaborative. He's still going to be on the sideline, Mike, with a sheet and, uh, and a headset. Yeah, and they're playing and us. They're, they're playing us. And, uh, uh, you know, every time we get in three receivers to the right, they're playing this. And then Patricia's going to write it down and Joe Judge are going to write it down. And they're going to start to understand throughout the game. And that's why they're so great at adjustments anyways there in New England so that's kind of how I envision it see it going at least not a great impersonation of Bill Belichick but a pretty spot-on impersonation of Phil Sims impersonating <laughs> Bill Belichick that's that's kind of the that's the, what always the happens lens to me. through which all of your bits <laughs> flow here's the other thing to keep in mind too as it relates to Judge and Patricia and this whole idea of submitting 
to the true Mass General. Both of those guys are working for free this year. Patricia worked for free last year. I forgot about that. He's working for free this year. He's still in his Lions buyout, and every dollar he makes from the Patriots is credited to what the Lions would owe him. Same thing for Joe Judge. Remember when we saw him last year after he got fired? They had like six cases of beer and 20 pizzas, and I'm thinking, Joe Judge is just going to live it up for a couple of years on the nickel of John Mara. Nope, he's working for free for Bill Belichick. And Patricia's working for free, again, for Bill Belichick. It's a free education. It's a Ph.D. plus in football. And they're getting themselves ready so they either can continue to be employed by the Patriots after their buyouts expire or they get themselves ready for a second act in coaching somewhere, just like Josh McDaniels now after an extended stay with the Patriots following the way things didn't work out for him in yeah. Denver. They're workers, Mike. On. They're, they're, let me ask oh, sorry, you, let me ask right. you this. Yeah. How does all this affect Mac Jones? That's I, really the most important aspect of this. I, I, I hear you. I, I know well, he's, he's definitely, you know, a, it's a different vision. You know, again, as much as I love Joe judge and Matt Patricia and they're, they're uh, to me again, I know it didn't work out as head coaches, but damn, they're good head. They're good coaches to have on your staff. They can coach a lot of different things, but, but yeah, the messages are going to be a little different. Are they going to be able to coach every intricacy in the world like Josh McDaniels could? Absolutely not. I just there's no way. I mean, that's what made Josh McDaniels special. As I've told you before, you know, I was with John Gruden who was considered an offensive genius. I got with Josh McDaniels and I learned things where I was like, "Whoa, I never knew that was what you guys did." And, "Whoa, that's how you teach it." And, "Whoa, you can still run that play against this coverage. I was always kind of taught not to do it. Well, yeah, if you, you adjust this and this, you can still run it. Well, so I, I can't imagine it's going to be quite as good as Josh McDaniels right off the bat. But I think that's probably part of this streamlined process of let's, let's make the, the package of plays smaller. Let's make the language smaller so there's not as many coaching points to be had out there and we can have more of a clear message in, within what we do. So that that's where New England's, you know, different, I think, than most places. And, and Mike, also, you know, you hear reports, right, like, hey, the offense doesn't look good, and, you know, Mac Jones and company doesn't look as good as last year in practice and things like that. Well, uh, New England's not worried about that. You know, there was plenty of days when I was up there where – they don't script for success. I think I've told you that before. Where I was on other teams where it was, hey, we want to run this play, and John Gruden would tell the defense what coverage he wants when he runs that play before we went out and practice. Uh, they, they just go, no, you adjust to the game. You adjust to it. We don't know what the defense is going to call. So we got to figure it out. And sometimes that makes practice look ugly. And, of course, then when you add in two new offensive minds and some adjustments that they're having there, uh, I'm sure it's not quite as smooth as it's been in years past. That's why it's practice. That's, That's right. That's why it's all building toward week one when they take on the Dolphins. And we really don't know what to feel about the Patriots. Although there was a point last year where we were feeling like, whoa, they, they're kind of back. That ended with a thud when they got the crap kicked out of them by the Buffalo Bills in the wild card round. But let's not forget that before that game, we were feeling like the Patriots were figuring life out post-Tom Brady. Now yep. they have to figure it out post-Josh McDaniels. But again... With Bill Belichick, any other coach, we would be saying, this is crazy, this is a train wreck, dysfunctional teams do dysfunctional things. With the Patriots, we say, yeah, you're probably 
They'll probably find a way to figure all this out and make it work. A team in their division that is trying to figure out how to keep their starting quarterback on the field, the New York Jets. Zach Wilson having surgery today in Los Angeles. It is Dr. Neil Elitrash who will be doing the arthroscopic procedure, determining the full extent of the damage. Right now, there's kind of a loose sense that we're not going to see Wilson week one against the Ravens. We will see Joe Flacco against his former team. Here is head coach Robert Sala discussing the confidence that he has in the one-time Super Bowl MVP. He's a pro. He's a veteran. He's been there. He's done that. He's a Super Bowl MVP. He's a world champion. He's He's gotten the big contracts. He's he's pretty much checked almost every box you can check. He knows how to play the game. Um, he's very calm. He's collected. We had the two-minute drive, very smooth in his operation. He just um, he's a veteran, and so he's and he's just going to be a. I just expect him to approach it like he has in his entire career. We got all the faith in the world in, in Joe. Um, he played last year his first start against Miami, who was absolutely rolling, and he threw for over 300 yards uh, at home. Uh, obviously, we didn't win, but um, but he did what he needed to do, as, and, they, and the offense played the way it needed to play. Um, you know, so he's he's a pro. He's going to figure out how to get it done. So, the rare franchise quarterback who has made more money than he or his kids can ever spend, who continues to hang around football because he loves the game. We've talked about that before. I can't think of another guy. Peyton Manning wasn't going to hang around and take a backup quarterback paycheck. Tom Brady isn't going to hang around and take a backup quarterback paycheck. He'll be good enough until he's 60 to be the number two guy on an NFL roster. No, they're not doing that. They're not doing that. There's a pride that comes into play here. This is the equivalent of Rocky carrying around the spit buckets in Rocky too. Joe Flacco is willing to do it because he loves it. And we'll find out week one against the Ravens, what he's still got left in the tank some 14 years after he entered the NFL. Uh, yeah, uh, in, in a lot of ways, I don't, you know, it, it, it's not all that bad. Joe Flacco, first off, can throw it. You've heard throughout training camp that he's had a great, you know, a great training camp throwing the ball. He's one of the, you know, it, it's one of the more underrated quarterbacks in the history of the game, in my opinion. Now, of course, he's not that guy anymore. But in a lot of ways... I, I could. This is not that you know, crushing, and and the fact that hey, I wish Zach Wilson was out there, and they're trying to build something for the future, and now hey, it's going to take a little time here, you know, to get things going. But at the same time, man, Ravens coming to town, okay, and whoa, you get to deal with that defense and all the crazy things they do, right? Uh, Joe Flacco's got experience against that crew and what they do. Uh, this their defense in Baltimore. I don't think it's going to be a whole lot different than what it was under Don Wink Martindale there, who's now the D coordinator of the Giants. You know, the guy they got there, he was also a Ravens guy as well. They've been running that system for a while there. So in some ways, I look at it and go, you know, from the mental aspect and how to pick up the blitzes and all the crazy disguises that Baltimore can do. Joe Flacco is going to be a calming presence for the Jets when it comes to that. He's going to be like, well, I saw this in practice every day. I know what to do. And he might even be able to clue his guys in a little bit on, hey, coach, when they line up, we line up in this formation, they like to do this and this blitz, and they like to check to this coverage. So I do think there's some positives. He's certainly not the Joe Flacco of old, but I think the Jets have 
maybe a solid enough team here and him to be smart where they can be a pain in the butt here early on in the year, even with Joe Flacco at quarterback. So I'm not giving up on them quite yet. Well, and let's not forget that their schedule, once again, oh, it's crazy. is crippling. They have somebody at 345 Park Avenue pissed off to high heaven. I mean, look at that. With or without Zach Wilson. Now, maybe they get lucky and they draw Jacoby Brissett, but still, I don't want to go to Cleveland week two, for which I assume will be the home opener. Yes, because they're in Carolina week one. Home opener at Cleveland? No thank you. Bengals, Steelers, Dolphins, Packers. Broncos. Now, what the hell? It's unreal. When do, we get a, when do we get a team that we maybe have a chance to beat? The Bears in week 12. See, look at the back end. Bears, Lions, Jaguars. If they would have gotten those games crammed into September, early October, you maybe win some games, you build some confidence, and that confidence becomes the fuel I know. to knock off a couple of these teams. Where I mean, look, through the, the, the left side of that, that column, they're going to be underdogs in every game, 100%. regardless of whether or not Zach Wilson's a quarterback. You're right. You're right. And they're a team that's, you know, to, to what you're saying, they're, they're young. They're not battle-tested. They don't know what it takes to, you know, put together a four-quarter game and manage the game and do all the right things to beat some of those football teams. They're not. And then that's beat the where... Bengals with Mike White. Uh, I, I know. I know. Hey, they, listen, that was, pass. it was a great day. I get it. I get it. Yes, but – that's this is they're a young organization you know it's it's a second year head coach so yeah that's where I get into hey they're talented the schedule is brutal but you're right they got to find a way to steal a game early on and I don't know how you're going to do that you got to you know that's where the coaches got to go back to the lab with the pen and the pad and go and start to go all right well where can we maybe a trick play here maybe a trick play there Maybe an onside kick. You know, again, I, I, I say this to some of my coaching friends all the time. I just don't think a lot of teams run enough trick plays. I go, you know who's led the league in trick plays over the last 17 years? The team that wins the damn Super Bowl every other year, the New England Patriots. I mean, nobody has run more trick plays than them. So find little ways in games where you go, hey, they're, more, they're a little more talented than us. Yes, but we're going to find a way to – throw the ball backwards to Julian Edelman, and he's going to throw the ball down the field to Danny Amendola and, and that. And then that's, that's where Salah and company are going to have to find some, some advantages that way. And look, th this could end up being a disastrous year for the Jets from the standpoint of how many games they win and how many games they lose. But along the way, they could be better. They could lay the foundation. Yes to make a jump next year. And this is one of the problems of today's NFL, where the five-year plan is out the window. Right. There's too much impatience from owners, especially the owners of the teams that can't get out of their own way. And I think part of the problem is, and this is good for the NFL and it's very good for us, the nonstop focus on the sport during an extended offseason that goes some seven months, it just creates more pressure when it comes down to those three-hour increments 17 times a year. You don't have many opportunities to make your team truly better. You don't have many chances to prove that you can hang with the best teams in the NFL. So you start piling up the losses, and at some point, Woody Johnson or whichever owner of whichever team is making changes too prematurely and too hastily is going to fire somebody because the fan base feels like something needs to be done or I'm not renewing my season tickets. And that's not the way to run a football team. But again, look, the, St the Steelers are the, the, the model that will never be matched again. Three coaches since 1969. But they won. 
before they were winning, they were throwing out coaches every other year. Right. You have to get to a point where you're winning to justify the patience that's necessary to stick with a team, stick with a coach, stick with the GM through thick and thin. It's just harder to do than ever, especially, you know, those first few pulls of the lawnmower. It's hard to get it started. It's right. harder than ever to get a program started. You got to hit early or you're gone. Yeah, I agree. It, it is. And it's just where uh, it, it, I don't know. The schedule is brutal. They got some young football, you know, young players, young coaches. I hope they do hang in there. It has become an impatient culture in the NFL between, you know, the fan base. Yes, people like us where we're, you know, dissecting everything all the time. And we just as a society have become now, 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 now. And there are. There's very few teams that have been patient that way. Um, and, and, and not and patient through bad years where it's just like, hey, we're going to take our lumps for two or three years with this guy because we think something's going to happen positively. And, you know, I, hey, I, you, you look at New England with Bill Belichick. You look at, hey, you could the 49ers, Kyle Shanahan. First year wasn't that good. Second year, Jimmy Garoppolo gets hurt. I mean, oh, wow, whoa. You know, people were clamoring out there. Oh, we got to get rid of this guy. All he does is, you know, blow the end of the Falcons Super Bowl and all that. Well, yeah, all right. You know, eat crap because now you're one of the best teams in football <laughs> and he'd been to the Super Bowl hey, in the NFC Championship the noise, game. The noise started up again last year. Right? No, no doubt. It's just where it's just it's gotten a little ridiculous that way. And uh, I think you're right, Mike, that, you know, cooler heads need to prevail in some of these situations a little more often. We are basically a nation of Veruca salts. We want everything now. We want it now. And this isn't a political observation by any means, and I don't mean to take us down this track, Chris. And I, let me just make a comment with no response from you. Yeah. There's a certain high-profile story right now that you may have noticed that has engulfed the entire political world, and everybody wants to go, like, to the end of the book now. You just At some point, you just got to sit and wait and see what happens. Everybody wants to know the answers. Everybody right. wants to reach their conclusions. Everybody wants to argue the final facts, and they don't know what the facts are. At some point, we just got to sit down, shut our mouths, and wait. We don't have to have everything Right now, we have more distractions than ever to keep us occupied while we express patience. Sometimes we need to be patient. We don't need everything right now. Yeah. All right, right now, let's pivot to the Baltimore Ravens. And and there has been extreme patience by owner Steve Bashotti because John Harbaugh has been the coach since 2008. It's easy to be patient because he's been good far more often than not since he joined the team. He arrived the same year as Joe Flacco. Here's John Harbaugh from yesterday talking about the prospect of facing his former starting quarterback come week one. Well, we'll prepare. You know, we'll prepare for, for, uh, prepare for the Jets. We'll prepare for all the quarterbacks. Obviously, we have great respect for, for all their guys, but Joe we know, and uh, he's a Raven, once a Raven, always a Raven. So we got a lot of respect for Joe and great family. So, uh, But at this point in time, we're preparing for the, the players on the Jets and the schemes and the things that they – that they do, and that'll be part of it. Been, he's been playing for three or four years now away from us, and he's, he's had some great moments. I've seen him on TV a few times. We've never played against his team yet, I don't believe, but uh, uh, it's been fun watching him, but it'll be different when you play against uh, you know him as his opponent. We haven't done that yet. Look, I don't follow baseball anymore, not the way I used to. 
in recent years, my general understanding is the Orioles suck. They must be pretty good this year. There's no they way are. John Harbaugh wears that hat. Yeah. If the Orioles are they anything are. like the way they've been the last 20 years. They're one of the surprises of baseball this year, Mike. Oh, I mean, as that's of, why he's got the hat right, on. As of right now, I, I believe they're one of the wild card teams. If they're not, they're like right in the thick of things and like, you know, within a game of being in it. But yes. Uh, no doubt about it. You're right. <laughs> so you're, you're spot the on. The only relevance the Orioles have had to me the past 20 years has been they had a home game the night the Ravens were supposed to hang their banner and the Ravens had to go on the road to Denver. That's the only time I've cared about the Orioles, really since the 1979 World Series. <laughs> well, okay. Well, they're back. Uh, you know, hopefully they can do something there. And hopefully not at the Yankees' expense. You know me. I'm a Yankees fan. Um, but, hey, uh, you know, they, he, I bet you in some ways – it, Harbaugh's probably like, ah, you know, I, I wanted to, you know, fluster the young second year quarterback. We got this, we got some new shiny pieces on defense and I would have loved to blitz his ass and do all these crazy defenses and see if he can handle it all. And now he's probably like, well, Joe's going to have answers. Joe's going to, this isn't going to fluster Joe. I mean, we've seen Joe Flacco. Nothing flusters Joe Flacco. That's what he's amazing. I was on the field for his his second playoff game in the history of his life. I mean, the, we were the number one seed, and he, he acted like he was a 10-year veteran. Oh, big deal. Oh, Albert Hainsworth is about to hit me, and Keith Bullock, big deal. Well, zoom, laser down the middle. He's got a great way about him that way, and uh, he's not going to get rattled by this Baltimore Ravens football team. So uh, I'm sure there is a part of, of Harbaugh that's like, damn, you know, we're, we're going to lose that advantage of, of being able to try to trick the quarterback a little bit with Flacco underneath the center. By the way, since we're in the vicinity of talking about baseball and I'm having flashbacks to the days I actually was an obsessive fan of the Pittsburgh Pirates. Come on, I do get have back in it. I, we, we didn't, we, we, the, the whole first pitch thing didn't work out this year because I, I decided I'm going to obsess over it until the day it finally happens and I'd rather enjoy my summer. But maybe next year I got to get out on the docket because over the weekend my son and I were outside and there was some ball out there that we were throwing back and forth and I'll, it felt I'll be good, right? On, I'll, I'll be. It felt good. Yeah. I'll be able to get up on the mound and and uh, yeah. Assuming assuming that I don't deteriorate rapidly between now and next summer, I, I can do it. Hey, I can do it. It's a great. It's yeah. a great American pastime. There's just something about being out in the grass, either throwing a football or when I'm having a catch with my son. I feel like I'm Robert Redford at the end of the Natural. You know, when he like finds out, you know, he's got a son and whatever, and he's throwing in the in the, the cornfield or whatever, that's, that's what I feel like. I mean, come on, how does it get any better than that? He finds out he has a son or whatever. <laughs> yeah, whatever. In the grass. He got some woman pregnant and got her. Yeah, finally met his son. <laughs> Glenn Close. Yes, all right. Spoiler alert. Right. A 38-year-old movie. Yeah, if you, don't, if you haven't movie. seen The Natural by now, there's nothing I can do for you. A, a pop-up draft. There won't I, be a draft later in the pro. Un- unannounced, whoa. unexpected. Here we go. Since we're talking about Joe Flacco, backup quarterbacks, yada, yada, the best backup – no, l- let me phrase it correctly because it's not the best backup quarterback. It's subjective. It's the backup quarterback in whom you have the most faith. Go. There's some good ones out there. I think the first one that I you know, I might go with – there is. There's, there's a difference here in who you have faith in and who you think's better and – you know, backup quarterbacks, it, it depends on the situation here a little bit. Um, but I think one that, you know, of course, the, how could you not have faith in Tyrod Taylor as a backup? That, that would be one that just right off the bat jumps out to me. You know, he's, he's played a lot of football. He can make some plays with his legs. And, you know, he's not 
when he does get thrown into those type of environments, he, he since he's played, he's he's not going to be flustered. So I, I look at him to handle those situations, you know, pretty damn well. I don't necessarily mean that there's some quarterbacks that I think are better than him that are actually backups, but I have confidence that he can come in and handle the situation, handle the defense, what they're doing, offense, all of that. So uh, I'll go with Tyrod Taylor there. What we've been talking about a quarterback who is now a backup who was once a Super Bowl MVP. There is one quarterback who's still a backup who won a Super Bowl MVP as a backup. Nick Foles, the ultimate backup. You want to have faith in a guy. It's Jekyll and Hyde. If he's the starter, he's horrible. If he's the backup, he's incredible. He's just wired a certain way. I don't know what it is. I don't know how it is. And I doubt that he understands what it is or how it is. He cannot perform consistently well under the pressure of being the guy. You make him the backup to the guy and you press him into service and something comes over him. Yeah. It's unbelievable. It is. It's inexplicable. And if it happens, and if you've watched any of the Colts bills over the weekend, I mean, Nick Foles did not look good, but I don't care about that. What I care about is if the Colts need him at some point in the season to replace Matt Ryan, I have more faith in him than any other number two quarterback in the NFL. Yeah, I I, I understand that. And you're right. There is something about that psychological element of yeah, there's a different set of pressure on you as compa- you know, starter compared to backup. And for whatever reason, he doesn't necessarily handle the starting pressure all that well. But when he comes off the bench, um, seems to kind of thrive in that environment. Um, I'll go with Case Keenum. I got great faith in Case Keenum. Uh, I, I do. Just to – you know, hold down the fort again. And not that I always look at some of these guys that they're going to go out and win games and maybe be the best option for an eight-game stretch. But, man, you got to play two or three games and, you know, settle the team down and, and manage the game that way. Case Keenum's a good athlete. He's a good arm, you know, and he's smart. And there's a reason he's been hanging around the NFL for as long as he has. He's, you know, one of those guys that you know, just knows how to play the game and, uh, you know, knows how to take care of the football. So Case Keenum's a guy that I would certainly have a lot of a lot of respect for in that in that manner. Think back to 2019. The Chiefs had Matt Moore hold the fort down for a short period of time, and they ended up winning the Super Bowl while Patrick Mahomes recovered from that knee injury he suffered on a Thursday night against Denver. I'm going Teddy Bridgewater yeah. simply because I'm if 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 that offense needs the backup in lieu of Tua Tonga I think they'll be just as good, if not better, with Teddy Bridgewater. Why not? Remember when he first signed, there was that weird day or two where Teddy created the impression. You called him out a little bit for maybe being a little presumptuous, maybe mischaracterizing what his role was going to be. Right. Creating kind of in a passive-aggressive way a controversy. But I think if the Dolphins need him, I mean, that's part of determining faith in your backup. What's the drop-off from one to two? With the Dolphins, sorry to and on, I don't think there's a drop-off. Uh, I, I don't disagree with you there either. I mean, we saw just a few years ago. He's another guy. He's, I, I, he's better as a backup than he is as a starter. You know, it's, it's Carolina, Denver, it's eh. Came in for the Saints on that team the middle of the year. You know, he's not asked to carry the team. The team can adjust and kind of manage the game a different way for a few games with that guy. 
You know, that's what I think we're talking about here. And you know, I, I do think there's other backups that are more talented that I would maybe trust throughout the long season. But, yeah, these guys here, you're right. You don't worry about it. You don't worry about them getting in out of the huddle and missing a check or missing a blitz or, or stuff like that. And uh, that's where they give you great confidence because they got the reps that way. All right, next one I'm going to go with. Well, we're going with all – I'm going to go with a new age one. I mean, Andy Dalton's out there. I know that. But I'm going to go with one of these new guys, Tyler Hundley. I got great confidence in Tyler Hundley in, in Baltimore. I mean, again, he just diced them up again this past weekend in ten, you know, against Tennessee Titans. What was he, 16 for 18 or 14 for 16? He's smart. He's accurate throwing the football. And then he can make some plays off schedule when he needs to. Uh, I, I mean, I, I think Baltimore, they got, yeah, they got something there. He's one of the better backups in football, and I'm a big Tyler Huntley fan. I remember Lamar Jackson saying at one point last preseason, I hope I never have to face him as the starter with another team. And you know what? If if Jackson, when Jackson, if he ever signs his long-term contract, it's not like they're going to have the luxury of keeping Huntley around. It's going to be a Tyrod Taylor situation. Tyrod Taylor was a backup to Joe Flacco at one point. The contract expires. You're not going to pay him to be your backup. He's going to go somewhere else and get a chance to become the guy. And I think it's just a matter of time before Huntley gets a chance to be a starter in Baltimore, if things don't work out with Lamar Jackson or definitely elsewhere. Last one for me. I'm yeah. going with the, the former Longhorn, the guy who was 2-1 last year when Kyler Murray was out, Colt McCoy. Sure. Uh, you know, just kind of quietly overlooked. Probably a guy that if he's playing that week, the opposing defense, not as buttoned up, not as as focused on preparation. Uh, Colt McCoy. What the hell's Colt McCoy ever done? Well, he'll he'll... He'll beat you if you give him an opportunity to do so. And he's another guy, even though he was never a franchise guy, he's happy to be part of the game. He's happy to continue to hang around. He's not trying to position himself to be a starter. He understands where he fits in the football hierarchy. And when he gets an opportunity, he he goes out and makes the most of it. Uh, yeah, he does. You can trust him. Again, it's another guy where, you know, I don't know if you want him to be your starter, but for three, four-game stretch, you know, he can manage the offense and do the things the right way. It's an interesting conversation when you have here because, you know, I, 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 it, it, there's, there's two different ways to look at backups. So, you know, come in and save the team. I know we picked these guys. But if you made me like go, hey, a backup's got to start the year and do things that way, that's where, I, you know, I forgot we were doing this draft and it caught me off guard a little bit. Um, like Gardner Minshew should be on our list here. You know, Gardner Minshew and Tyler Huntley, I think for an extended period of time, I, I actually think I would trust them more than Case Keenum and Teddy Bridgewater. I would. I think they would make more plays and be better offensively. Now, I don't know if that necessarily means they'll come in in the third quarter of a game and be quite as smooth because they haven't had as much experience maybe as a Tyrod Taylor and those guys. So there is difference in how to look at this backup, and we don't have enough time to, to get in this, but we should have had Gardner Minshew in there too because he's a guy that's I trust big time. And if he gets there, gets in there in Philadelphia, just like we, again, we saw him the other night, he just, you know, it's boom, boom, boom right down the field, and he did that in the regular season last year too when he had to play against the New York Jets. I got tremendous confidence in him as well. I had him on my list, and I still don't know why he's a backup. I don't know why the Seahawks didn't try to trade for him. I'd have more confidence in Gardner Minshew 
than Geno Smith or Drew Locke. If he's the guy that you're saying is our guy, we're going to ride. We're going to do Seattle versus everybody. Russell Wilson wanted out. Our attitude is F all of you. Gardner Minshew is the perfect quarterback for that, if that's the vibe that they're trying to create. I, I, I remember last year he was like this forgotten figure, although Urban Meyer was trying to create some stupid-ass quarterback controversy in order to apparently generate more trade value for Minshew. It didn't work. They only got a sixth-round pick for him, which is ridiculous. And, and I do think he's a valuable backup yeah. and a viable future starter in the NFL. This is year four for him I believe so after this season he becomes free agent and it'll be interesting to see you know when you start thinking about the guys who'll be available in March he's a guy that maybe we look at and say yeah those teams that are maybe looking for that bridge quarterback or whatever or just hey we're not sure what we're gonna do but we'll make him the guy and maybe he can prove to us he is the guy and if not all right, nobody really expected him to be the guy, so then we can continue to look for, for other options out there. Yeah, yeah uh, I hear you. And he is one of those guys where, man, if I was Jalen Hurts, yeah, I, and you're on that team because that team is stacked. They are one of the best rosters in football where I go, ooh, he gets hurt. Uh, get healthy in a hurry because Gardner is that kind of guy that we know. It's a lightning rod personality. The team rallies around him, and they're a good football team where – you know, he could be a, a pain in the butt and start a, a little, you know, schism uh, as far as the fan base and all that. Is that the right word, schism? I think that's the right word. Wow. Well done. Boom. Well done. That that was coined about this time 13 years ago when Brett Favre was about to become a Viking and there was supposedly a schism between the players who wanted Tavares Jackson and those who wanted Brett Favre. And then Favre showed up for one practice and the schism went away. <laughs> yeah, they said, whoa, the football one he time. throws the ball like that? Okay, he's <laughs> there, the quarterback. <laughs> there, there went the schism. Uh, but you know what? It's an entertainment business. And like Favre, Gardner Minshew is extremely entertaining. <laughs> and uh, there's a lot of boring quarterbacks out there. Minshew isn't one of them. And, and he makes the, the game a little spicier if he's on the field or if he's the guy who's talking to the media off the field or whatever. Let's take a break. What can we expect from the 49ers offense this season with Trey Lance under center? We'll discuss that next on this Tuesday edition of PFT Live. 